heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Welcome to Voice of a Nation. And today we're talking more about finding COVID-19 in the gut and what the virus does to cause upset in the balance of the gut microorganisms that we need to stay healthy. Many of you listeners have heard the term microbiome, meaning all of the organisms in the intestinal tract some of which are keeping us healthy and some of which can cause disease. So we're talking about how does COVID affect the gut and how does the finding of COVID in the stool add to our understanding of how this virus can spread to others in ways that perhaps you may not have heard a lot about. We also want to describe some similarities between the COVID virus and the Norwalk virus, which many of you have heard about. It's the virus that tends to spread like wildfire on cruise ships. And there are similarities between COVID and Norwalk that we'll get into. And we also want to talk today about the many health problems and symptoms that are emerging now that we have a longer time frame of monitoring COVID patients, what is happening for some people who develop what we call medically the COVID long hauler syndrome? Those who don't recover quickly and continue to have persistent symptoms that may affect the gut or the brain or the musculoskeletal system And what is happening with that? Who's more at risk? And how are we learning ways to treat that? And then we want to talk further about how do you know when you're over COVID? How do you know when it's really out of your system? So all of these are fascinating questions that we all have going forward, particularly those of you that may have had COVID and recovered, and those of you that are still fearful of getting this viral illness. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm, with our guest today, Dr. Sabine Hazen. Dr. Sabine Hazen is a gastroenterologist, COVID researcher, and CEO of Ventura Clinical Trials, a research center that has done over 150 clinical trials for pharmaceutical companies and over 100 privately self-funded trials. Dr. Hazan is is also CEO of Progenobiome, a genetic sequencing laboratory that is looking at a signature microbiome that explains a variety of diseases from COVID-19 to Alzheimer's, autism, ALS, and others. She is host of the Malibu Microbiome Conference, which is coming up on March 20th this year. And lastly, and I think importantly, she is a woman and a physician 
who's on a path to understand life and fight for our medical freedom. Today, we'll be exploring in more depth what Dr. Hazan is learning from her clinical trials on the microbiome, in particular, COVID-19. Welcome, Dr. Hazan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you back on Voice of a Nation. And I, I want us to explore today, there's been a lot of discussion about just exactly how COVID is spread. And one of the things that we've all been told is that it's a respiratory virus and spreads by respiratory droplets, which is why all of the mask mandates and people have to wear a mask everywhere they go. But there are some other means of spread that you and others have identified that perhaps the public hasn't heard as much about. Could you tell us about what we're learning about how COVID in the gut plays a role in how this virus is spread? So um, COVID, as we've learned and as we know, uh, hits the ACE2 receptors. And where are the ACE2 receptors? They're present in the brain and the blood and mostly in, and obviously in the lungs, but mostly in the GI tract, the gastrointestinal tract. And so the focus of, for me, was looking really at the stools because everything ends up in the stools. And especially where the GI tract is so long, um, you know, there, there's a potential of the virus multiplying, replicating in the stools. And so um, it, was, it was an interest of mine to focus on looking at the stool samples um, rather than focusing on the uh, saliva or sputum or throat swab or nasal swab. And uh, what we discovered, um, surprisingly, was that out of 100% of the patients we tested that were positive for nasal swab PCR, um, that they ended up all having uh, the genetic presence of the virus in the stools. And, um, and, and that was very fascinating to us because it kind of, you know, showed what our hypothesis was from the beginning, that eventually it ends up in the gut and it probably can reside in the gut and stay there for a very long time and then therefore start the domino effect of creating havoc in your gut. And your gut, as you know, is your immunity, right? So... Well, also, if the virus is being, is in the gut, what happens when family members, for example, are sharing bathrooms or people are sharing bathrooms in public toilets? Does that mean that that's another way that the virus can spread is through fecal particles? Yeah, so when people think of fecal oral transmission, they, they think, oh, well, you got to wash your hands and therefore I'm going to get it because I'm touching the bathrooms, right? And I'm touching a fecal material. But actually, that's not the way it transmits. So what people need to understand is when you go to the bathroom and you actually, you know, have finish your bowel movement, that moment the virus goes airborne, so it's the the transmission occurs because it is going airborne. So when you go into a bathroom and you smell, you know, a horrid smell, and I'm going to kind of give the example of, you know, um, other viruses um, from that you mentioned, which is Norwalk, 
when you go, how does a cruise ship get 465 people to be infected? It's not from the food. It's not because everybody touched each other. It's really because of the common uh, systems um, that are in the ship of the septic, of the bathrooms, of the, you know, everybody utilizing a bathroom. And then that, those particles, those viral particles floating airborne. And really that's the contamination. That's how people get the fecal oral transmission that we talk about. So to me, you know, that was something that I, I thought of earlier on because I said, well, if it's evacuating from the stools and it's in the stools, um, it is potentially um, in the septic. And of course they did find it in the septic, um, in the septic. The reason that it is not as big of a problem in the septic is also in the septic of our bathrooms. We also dump in a bunch of Clorox and we dump in a bunch of detergents and all that. And, and so the whole environment kind of cleans up all that in itself. You know, the, the planet does a great job of kind of cleaning up all these viruses and recirculating bacteria, etc. So I think that's why it's not a big problem in the septic tank itself and 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 the rivers and the waters and all that. But I think in a close proximity in a family where you have a family that is um, washing their hands, for example, or use, utilizing the same bathroom, there is a potential for transmission there. Well, what about, airport. for example, in a lot of the public restrooms, <clears throat> there are these power flush toilets. So I've noticed many times in public restrooms that when you flush the toilet, that there's actually water spray that gets on the seat of the toilet. So is that a way that some of the viral particles can be aerosolized as well as simply airborne as you finish a bowel movement? Yeah, I mean, I think all always, uh, you know, I think uh, that's one way, you know, certainly the passing of gas itself is, is another way, right? So to, to pass the virus, I mean, without making everybody panic about that. But, you know, there is, there's definitely um, something that we cannot quantify to say, you know, a scientist, how do you measure that? How do you see if how the virus was passed on from the bathroom, for example, you know, all you can do is really test the water um, and, and see if there was uh, COVID in the water. And then you see from the history of the patients, right, the clinical data, uh, somebody, a worker that shared the same bathroom as someone that was positive, one wonders if when they were in the bathroom, they were not as careful with their mask or careful with, um, with, you know, proper hand washing, et cetera, in the bathrooms, and therefore, you know, got contaminated from that bathroom more than anything. Well, I think there was, there actually were some discussion in our C-19 group of physicians that, that that was one of the theories about how perhaps some of the spread of COVID on the planes might have occurred was through the common lavatory and the power flush and people taking their mask off when they go to the restroom. So there, there are a lot of aspects of that. And I know that you are engaged in ongoing research about the effects of COVID-19 on the gut and the intestinal tract. And there may be some things that you are not yet able to discuss because the studies haven't been completed. 
and you need to analyze the data. But, but perhaps you could share with our listeners some of the general observations. And I know I can come back to uh, some of the things that we've learned from animals where COVID really affects the gut. So tell us some of the ways in which you are able to talk about that COVID can, can cause problems with the intestinal tract. So um, when COVID enters the, the microbiome, it has two options. It can just evacuate through the GI tract or it can reside in the GI tract. It can, and, and how does it reside in the GI tract? Um, it resides because essentially there's room there for it to start duplicating, replicating, right? And so the, if um, some of the data that we've seen from other diseases that we've looked at, um, you know, be it Alzheimer's, uh, autism, Crohn's disease, um, we've noticed a signature in the microbiome, something that is common to all those diseases, right? Of course, we're at the beginning of this. I always say, you know, nothing is, is right until it's published and until we've seen a thousand patients, for example, to see, to say with certainty, Yes, this is the marker. Yes, this is the signature of the microbiome. Um, what we did notice with the microbiome with COVID-19 is there is definitely a signature. We're going to be publishing that, so that's coming down. But that would certainly explain why some people are stronger at surviving COVID versus some are weaker at surviving COVID, right? And I think one of the things that's important when we start talking about that signature in the future is um, is understanding that that's really your immunity. That's your strength. And by it being your strength, um, that helps us in, in assessing your mortality rate and your risk of dying versus your risk of surviving. So I think the future is going to be interesting. Um, especially in the microbiome space of COVID-19. Uh, for us, it was, it was uh, fascinating, and we were very excited when we first found COVID-19 whole genome in the stools. And now we're seeing something in the microbiome that is actually uh, even more exciting. So we'll see. I mean, you know, until it gets accepted by a peer review, et cetera, and uh, makes the news, you can't really talk about it. But... Uh, I think we're on the right track, and I think focusing on looking at the gut microbiome and focusing on looking at the gut period is very important when you bring out these therapies. You know, if you're saying a therapy is working as an outpatient, it's very important to see if the virus that you saw in the gut disappears after the therapy. And that's really the whole, my whole interest um, with these microbiome uh, assays, with these COVID-19 assays that we're developing um, at the genetic level. So remember, PCR and genetic of sequencing, PCR is just a portion of the virus. It's just one little segment. Genetic sequencing is the whole entire virus um, with all its mutations. So it really gives us a great insight onto the virus. It really tells us the history. Uh, it's going to tell us the the future of the virus, and it's going to tell us, you know, um, we're going to be able to follow the evolution of this virus a little bit better. So that's really what, 
for me, is the exciting part of analyzing the stools. Well, and for our listeners to understand, the PCR nasal swab is the test that most people are familiar with, and, and it's done by the nasal swab, and it's a, it's a descriptive or qualitative test that can pick up fragments of coronavirus, COVID-19, and it may pick up um, old fragments, or it may pick up currently new infective fragments. And one of the things that people have heard a lot about is what's called the cycle threshold. And when laboratories are running the test at 35 and 40 cycle thresholds, they pick up, the test becomes too sensitive, leading to false positives. And that's been one of the questions in this whole area of COVID testing. The inventor of the PCR nasal swab test has even said it wasn't meant to be diagnostic. It's a descriptive qualitative test. So that's what the public and our listeners are familiar with. Explain to us, if you, if you will, what you mean by genetic sequencing, because I think it's helpful for people to understand that that is a much more detailed test. It's much more involved and more expensive to do. But tell us a little more about that, because I, I don't think our listeners have heard very much about genetic sequencing testing. So genetic sequencing testing is basically taking a specimen, a sample, okay, and it could be a saliva sample, it could be a, um, a mucus sample from the back of the nose, or it could be a stool sample, um, and essentially putting it in a liquid that freezes it in time, that kind of puts it as a gel, like a, and and freezes it, and then from there, finding in that sample, zoning in, enhancing, removing the bacteria, focusing on the viruses, and then zoning in on the virus itself, looking for COVID and looking for all the segments and reassembling it with obviously a complex software and, and pipeline that we do to look exactly at the whole genetic, of the whole component of the virus. So it's basically a look into an invisible world. It's almost like electron microscopy, except you're looking, you know, deeper into a stool sample to isolate the virus, and you're looking at the whole genome, the whole entire virus, uh, all the regions, all the spike proteins, all the mutations, just everything is lined up. So it's a lot... Um, more sensitive. It's a lot. It's a, it's. I, I like to call it forensic medicine of the gut, uh, because really, when we look at the microbiome, it is forensic medicine. It's looking through trillions of bacteria and viruses and fungus, and basically isolating or or identifying ten thousand bacteria that have been named, or fifteen thousand. And then from there, kind of making sense of it all, kind of making sense of the relationship, et cetera. So when we do genetic sequencing, we, I, we have two options from that stool sample you, you give me. So first of all, the stool sequencing, in my opinion, is, is um, a lot more sensitive for one, more, for one reason in that, you know, the patient is collecting it himself. 
So there is not a secondary person that is a technician that potentially could be infected herself and contaminating that sample, right? Because we've certainly seen the false positive with PCR, and one wonders, well, is it because it was contaminated, right? Because there's a, another person in the mix that's collecting that, that PCR, that nasal swab, right? And then it's in the lab. So the beauty of the uh, genetic sequencing is it actually it's the, it's the person doing it, uh, collecting it for us. So it's their virus, their, their stool sample, and they're putting it in this liquid, like I said, which is kind of like a gel, like a wax that gives it an imprint. And then that imprint is essentially neutralized, and we put it through our a pipeline that focuses directly on COVID-19. And that's how we're able to isolate and look at all the regions of the virus and all the mutations and everything. So it's very time. It's very. Um, it takes a lot of time, a lot of precision, a lot of uh, methods are applied to get that. So it really is. Uh, forensics of the gut to look for that. And it's an important tool because it helps us with certainty to say, yes, it's there or no, it's there or it's no, it's not there. At least we hope with certainty. So far, you know, we have 100% uh, finding for all the people that were positive PCR, we found it. And then we found in a couple people that were asymptomatic we found it in their stools, but their PCR was negative. So, and, and the people that were negative PCR, ne- asymptomatic, we found it to be negative in the stools as we predicted. So, you know, we've so far shown some, you know, 100% sensitivity and 100% specificity, but of course we have to do more samples. And it is time consuming and it is expensive because these are not, you know, paid by any insurances or anything like that. It's just strictly research. That's really absolutely fascinating. And I think it, it helps if we can have a more definitive diagnostic test, such as you're describing. You mentioned we have just a couple minutes before we'll take a break, but can you quickly mention something that Iceland is doing to refine the diagnosis of COVID compared to the United States? Yeah, so I was actually, I started watching the data from Iceland, and I started watching the data from China. In fact, that's what got me into focusing to use my lab um, to be part of this solution for COVID-19, because I started noticing that in China, the virus was different than in Italy, for example. And that's what scared me about this virus, because I said, oh my God, it's mutating very fast from one country to another. And so I, that's why I wanted to look at it with my own eyes, the mutations, and see if this was actually reported. One of the, you know, epic data and amazing research um, has actually come from Iceland because this is a small country who basically depends on tourism, and they isolate everybody that had COVID. They analyzed and did genetic sequencing on those people. And they noticed early on, I remember seeing their data where they had, you know, 60 mutations already, you know, from a a few amount of patients. So, you know, that was the way, to me, that was the way to start looking at it. We've accumulated 400 samples right now that we're testing, and we're going to be looking at all these mutations, et cetera. Um, If not more, actually, I think our freezers are full of COVID (laughs) samples with stools, but 
you know, this is, this is where the answer is, right? The answer is in understanding from different states, because we've collected stool samples from COVID patients from all across the country, because patients came to me for treatment, whether off-label or in clinical trials, and we collected it because we wanted to see, well, what is, are we seeing the virus before and after we give a certain therapy? Is the virus disappearing in the stools after we give a therapy? And so that was my whole focus. And I think that's when we talk about therapies and when we talk about treatment in the future, it's going to need to have a better uh, diagnostic. And that's what I'm hoping to develop is a better diagnostic that the FDA can say with certainty and the National Institute of Standards can say with, with certainty, yeah, you know what? This is the treatment because it disappears. Imagine when you do laser therapy on a lesion and then it disappears. Well, you've seen the lesion before and then after you use the laser, the lesion disappeared. If you could show the same thing with a genetic sequencing test where you had the virus and you had 5,000 copies of the virus and then after you gave a treatment, there was zero copies, that's an important test to have. And not only in the genetic sequencing, but also in the blood quantitative PCR. But we can talk about all that after. Yes, that's excellent. Very helpful. And I think the key point for our listeners to understand here is that what you've just described indicates that the variants of COVID are not new. They've been there since the beginning. This is not a new threat. This has been going on with mutations all along. We'll talk more about that and talk more about some of the implications for patients as soon as we come back from our break. This is Dr. Lee for America and for Malcolm with Voice of a Nation. We'll be right back. Listen to Malcolm, the Voice of a Nation on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. My fellow Americans, you've watched for decades as radical Marxists have systematically taken over some of our nation's most cherished institutions. And like us, we're pretty sure you're not happy about any of it. But this is the America we now find ourselves in. AmericaOutloud.com is fighting back with one of the fastest growing conservative media networks in the world featuring some of the nation's most influential experts and commentators. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. 
the silent majority has spoken. We say, let the silent voices be heard. You can be the voice of change. Contact our producer at Liberty at America Liberty at America This is Dr. Lee for America standing in for Malcolm and we're back with Voice of a Nation with our guest, Dr. Sabine Hazan and talking about COVID-19 and the gut. And what's the connection with COVID and how does it affect your gut? And how does that affect spread as well as what's it, what's the COVID-19 implication for the long hauler syndrome if the virus resides in your gut? And one of our, I think one of the things I'd like our listeners to know is that if any of you listening to the show are interested in becoming on the part of the research at Dr. Hassan's progenobiome research on COVID-19 in the gut, you can go to the progenobiome.com website and there actually are forms so that you can participate in any of the research trials that are ongoing if there are ones that are of interest to you. And so I think that's another way that people across the country can begin to get more information about what's the impact of COVID, what's the impact for me personally, and then you are doing something to help others by participating in the research projects. So let's continue your discussion of the research and the genetic sequencing and how expensive and complicated it is, but also how definitive it is and that that's what's leading you to these fascinating connections. So how do you, how would you know whether COVID is out of your system? If you've recovered clinically and your symptoms are gone, let's say you were treated with ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin or doxycycline and corticosteroids and you're well, you don't have any more symptoms, how would you know whether COVID is actually gone from your system? Do your tests show that? So yes, when we uh, we look at patients after they've been treated or after they've recovered and were asymptomatic and then in fact developed antibodies, the the disappearance of the virus um, in the stools from the samples we've already analyzed. Um, shows that it actually disappeared and the patients recovered. Of course, you know, there, is, there are always those patients that do not recover, do not develop antibodies, and those are the long haulers, the patients that are still having symptoms, the patients that are still having neurological complications. And, you know, in the small population that we've tested so far, we are still seeing the virus in the stools. Um, and so, therefore, we got to focus on treating that virus. But, of course, that's, that's, uh, that's a small population. We need to do bigger data, bigger patient population to see if really the long haulers are because the virus is, is either still in their stools present or the virus created such havoc in their microbiome that it caused the, the neurological problem to begin with. So it's very complex um, in all those long haulers. And I think that's why we need to focus 
um, the world needs to focus on not only vaccinating, but also treatment. We need a treatment. We need an outpatient therapy um, that is outpatient, not an intravenous infusion, uh, because we're seeing all these long haulers, and we don't know. We don't know whether they're still carriers of the virus and therefore potentially infecting others. So, you know, these test, genetic testing are expensive, and not everybody's doing it, and they're not covered by insurances. They're only in the research level. So, you know, that's, but we need to start looking at all these long haulers for sure. Well, the, the long haulers, COVID, we, by that, again, for our listeners, we mean persistent symptoms of COVID after you've come out of the hospital or after you've ended your outpatient treatment. And we really don't know why some people develop the long haul syndrome and others don't. But one of the factors that many of us physicians treating patients on the front line have come to put together is that the longer people go without early treatment in the outpatient setting, and the more days of active symptoms that they have, the more likely they are to have more intense inflammation, more intense blood clotting complications, and then more intense damage to the critical organs, which may be one of the biggest risk factors for the long hauler syndrome. And again, we need more data to prove that point. But those patients that are treated in the first three to five days of symptoms seem to be less at risk for residual symptoms. And coming back to your point, Dr. Azan, if we had a way to send the stool samples into a research project to be analyzed with the genetic sequencing, we might have better answers to those questions, I think. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think uh, you're absolutely right because what happens is these long haulers are um, having, so you're right, it's, it's, it's symptoms persisting, but it's also new symptoms, right? Neurological problems. I'll tell you early on, uh, last year, I treated a family and one of the little girls who I didn't treat because she was asymptomatic and I felt, well, she's going to be fine. And three months later, the little girl develops Tourette's and, and tics. And so one wonders, was that a complication from COVID that was not treated or was COVID still in the stools or was um, COVID, you know, or did COVID create such havoc that it created the neurological problem, much like what we see with other neurological. Anything treated early is golden, right? This virus replicates, it multiplies. So if you catch it before it multiplies, before it hits your lungs and start creating havoc in your lungs, before it starts creating head, heading to the to the heart, before it starts going into the blood and sitting in the blood vessels, the ACE2 receptors, before it goes to the brain to cause a stroke, before it causes a coagulation problem, before it causes a GI problem, anything you treat early you're going you're gonna to get rid of it from the beginning and therefore have people develop antibodies quickly because you treated it early. So I, I believed and I still believe, and I've said that from the beginning, early to treat, early to cure. 
That's the number one. Number two, I think we need to show that we have actually cured it, that we've actually resolved it, that we've removed it from the stools. And, and that's the importance of a diagnostic tool. And, and diagnostic, not just for you know, genetic sequencing, but also uh, quantitative PCR. And I'm going to explain what that is. If you remember from hepatitis C, when we started treating hepatitis C and we were seeing whether the hepatitis C was resolving and patients were getting better, we were monitoring a quantitative PCR. We don't have that yet for COVID, and we need that desperately because that's going to help us in the treatment. So we need a stool, a stool diagnostic. We need a quantitative PCR, and we need outpatient therapy um, early to treat, early to cure. That's, that's the end of the story with COVID-19, in my opinion. If you wait too long, it's like H. pylori. Do you wait till you get a lymphoma in the stomach, or do you treat H. pylori quickly to avoid the lymphoma? You know, anything you treat early, you will get rid of. Do you wait for your whole head to have, you know, lice and have multiple eggs, or do you get rid of the lice that's on the head, and then you treat everybody in your household with a shampoo to avoid them having lice or scabies in the future. So when it comes to bugs, you know, bugs do what they do best. They, they replicate. They inhabit the host, right? And they invade the host. So we need to get rid of them before they invade us and kill us. So that's the whole basis of really understanding the microbiome and understanding microbes in general. Well, that's it. It's such common sense, and it has been the hallmark of medicine since the days of Hippocrates 2,500 years ago. And the more that modern medicine has learned about the different diseases, the more important our early treatment has become, which is why the whole response to last year in 2020 with COVID-19 simply made no sense to most doctors. Why right. is government telling people that they need to go home, live in fear, and get sick, and get sicker before they're allowed to go to the ER? It makes no sense. And fear suppresses the immune response. So and, and, and the biggest, yeah, absolutely. The biggest thing, and you touched a soft subject for me. Why are people listening to government when they should be listening to their doctors that are succeeding in treating COVID, right? Exactly. Why are we not following success? Why are we following hypothetical or fear? Why are we not following what's shown to help some? You know, when I went on this path, I followed Dr. Barodi because I respect the man because he attained cures on so many things and, in fact, was one of the big developer of the triple therapy for H. pylori. So I saw a man that had a vision to know how to treat H. pylori, and I figured that if, I knew, if he knew how to treat H. pylori, then he's going to figure out with me how to treat COVID, right? That's all yep. it's all about. Well, I think that's exactly right. And one of the things that I was struck by in talking with Dr. Peter McCullough last summer was the fact that he talks about the fact that there are four pillars of controlling an infectious yes. disease, contagion control, early treatment, 
hospital treatment for those who are critically sick. And the fourth pillar is developing immunity, herd immunity, which correctly means natural immunity as well as immunity triggered by right. a vaccine. The focus today has become on vaccine as the sole cause of herd immunity. That's actually not accurate. Herd immunity is better developed with natural immunity from having people who've recovered from the illness. But it's like there was a total disconnect between pillar one and pillar four in the minds of the government officials and the bureaucrats and FDA people and politicians that were directing what doctors could and couldn't do when they completely eliminated the focus on early treatment. And that's where the secret lies with any illness, but especially a viral illness. Right. But ultimately, those politicians will come back to the doctors that are on the front line and ask them the question. So it's interesting that we are listening to politicians who don't even know what an anaerobic bacteria is, right? So who don't even know what, a, what lactobacillus does or ruminococcus does or, or bifidobacter or any of those bacteria. They have no clue, no experience. And yet we're listening to them telling us how to be, how to live, how to treat when we should be putting the doctors on the front line, the scientists on the front lines that are seeing these patients day by day. Because by the time we write the data, years, you know, years, months, years will pass and then more people will die. Why do we have to wait? Why can't we speed it up a little bit and listen and see what's going on? So, I mean, that's why I'm doing the research with the FDA watching, because at the end of the day, it's my job to show the FDA the data, right, as a scientist, as a physician. And that's why I think, you know, people need to, to partay in that to help us, help us show the data. That's important. Exactly right. And one of the things that I think we will come back to is that I, I think in retrospect, history will be very unkind to those who pushed delay and those who condemned the doctors who did have the courage to treat their patients early with the best tools that they had available and look at ways to try and save lives. In the meantime, I think it's important for our listeners to know that there are resources available to teach you what options you have for early treatment that Dr. Hassan and I have been discussing that we're both using for our patients. And that's available in the layman's guide, covidpatientguide.com. It's a free e-booklet that's being distributed as an educational resource by the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, aapsonline.org. And you can go to that website and look for resources for telemedicine doctors who are treating COVID early. The patient guide is one we encourage you to print out, keep with your medical records, read it before you get sick and have it available to understand your options. And the sooner that you start treatment, the more quickly you're able to have your body recover, the less disruption to the gut microbiome and all of the other organ systems in your body, and you're less likely 
to risk the long hauler syndrome. Dr. Hazan has talked about some of the neurological aspects of this long hauler COVID syndrome. I'd like to, to ask you, Dr. Hazan, to talk a little bit more about some of the other musculoskeletal and neurological manifestations you've seen in people that have difficulty recovering from COVID. So I've been fortunate because actually I, I get patients and I treat them early. So I've not had that much experience with the long haulers because everybody gets treatment uh, one way or another and we follow them very closely. So we've not seen those kinds of problems. Um, what we have seen um, are patients that are basically referred from other doctors that were not treated that had you know, neurological skin conditions. Um, I had two rashes that we're actually publishing um, on with COVID, post-COVID, um, and still probably had COVID. Um, and then, of course, musculoskeletal, chronic fatigue, that's definitely, you know, one of the things we're seeing. Um, but on the whole, those are the population. From my patients, I've not seen that because we've treated them early. Um, and we want to avoid all these problems, of course. But then, you know, there's also the documented uh, from other physicians, and the literature definitely shows it, uh, especially cardiac problems, um, cardiac complications. The person that was sent home on no treatment and then felt better from COVID in the respiratory but then dies of a heart attack. I mean, you know that probably could have been um, that there was COVID involved in the heart in that patient. So, of course, you know, that's why the big push of early to treat, early to cure. And this is not a virus that you can play with. This is a virus that's mutating. That's a virus when you talked about mutations. Yes, we knew about mutations, you know, early on, but the mutations are getting stronger and uh, potentially we're making this into a super bug, and that's my concern. My concern is delaying all the therapy, delaying all these outpatient therapies is just going to create a super bug like we did with C. diff. And then think about it. C. diff became a super bug. The only way to treat it was fecal transplant. We're not going to start doing fecal transplant on patients with COVID because we barely, you know, they may have COVID in the stools to begin with. So we're definitely damaging the microbiome. We're definitely, you know, um, affecting it. And the microbiome is, is humanity. It is health. And so long-term, looking into the future, 20, 30, 40 years, if we continue at that rate, the microbiome, the perfect microbiome is going to disappear, and then with it, potentially humanity. I don't, know, I don't mean to be overdramatic, but that's a fear that wakes me up early in the morning to do my job and, and, and uh, keeps me late at night not sleeping because I see the damages to the microbiome already on all these diseases. And so, you know, think about it. Heart disease is through the roof, cardiovascular. With globalization came globesity. With globesity, you know, we also have around the world celiac sprue in areas. India has celiac sprue. Why does India have celiac sprue? You know, we're, we're mixing all these microbes. We're, mixing, we're, we're damaging our foods. We're damaging, we're giving too much to our guts. And all that is a chain reaction till at some point you can't even stop. COVID is just a consequence of all that. It's a, a, a breakdown. 
in the microbiome that basically allowed for COVID to flourish and to become this super bug in a, in a way. So I think that's why it's important for the whole world to, to work together. It's important for politicians to work together, frankly, um, because this is unity that brings answers. I would not be playing with this virus to make money. I would not be developing a product to make money because this is not a virus you play with. That's my opinion. Well, I think you're exactly right, because if you don't treat early, this is a virus that can quickly move into critical illness for the reasons we've been talking about. And I've certainly seen that in family members of patients of mine, where the family member was not able to get their doctor to treat early. And many have died, many have become critically ill and barely made it out of the hospital. Um, it's, it's been quite alarming to see how quickly, and even in my patients and the people that I treat early, I treat them as quickly as they let me know they have symptoms. But even in those patients, getting started early, I've still had several people that progressed into the more serious phases of the illness, and we needed to pull out all the stops using the whole algorithm that Dr. McCullough and his team developed, we couldn't just Absolutely. use one drug. It's always and been about combination approach. Absolutely. And that tells you the virus may be getting stronger from that point alone. I remember when I started in March, super easy to fix. You know, we would give, you know, and I know the whole controversy of hydroxychloroquine, but we would give a couple pills of hydroxychloroquine and then it was fine. Then you had to use bigger guns, add the azithromycin, the vitamin C, vitamin D, the zinc. Then you add the ivermectin. You know, there's some population that you have to give everything, eloquist, colchicine, everything that you have in your power, lisinopril, anything to kind of get to this virus. And that population, you wonder if the mutation is so strong that that's what would take would have taken over the patient. So that's why I think we need to, you know, relook at everything and say, okay, we need a therapy that's close to a hundred percent as possible. And unfortunately, what we've seen um, from the data of remdesivir, you know, that's nowhere close to that. So we need to, you know, work with the agencies. We need to show them the data. And we need to show them cheap solutions. And people need to invest in the development of cheap solutions, not because you can make money from a cheap solution, but because you can fix the problem so everybody can go back to their lives. Because businesses are losing, the farmers are losing, everybody's losing. So we need to all have a cheap solution for everyone. And, and you need to treat everyone, right? You have to treat the homeless that's on the streets the same way that you treat the billionaire that's in his house, right? And so that's why it needs to be a uniform, cheap, safe solution at, at the end of the day that's early to treat. And that's it. That's how you, you eradicate the, this problem. I quite agree. But you don't see that being discussed at the national leadership level. The emphasis is totally on the vaccines. Now, economically, the vaccine market has been estimated to be over a trillion dollars 
if you look at the vaccine sales in the wealthy G8 countries where the focus is, but there is no discussion at the national policy level for the very issues that you just brought up. And you're right, that's even if, even if the vaccines were as effective as they claim, and even if we vaccinate everyone, there's still people who are sick who need treatment. So we still need the treatment approaches. And we and still, there's still people you Yes, and there's still people you're not going to be able to reach to vaccinate, right? The person that's the mentally ill, that's roaming the streets and that is living on the streets, you're not going to be able to reach him. You're not going to even know he exists to vaccinate him or if you got him to vaccinate. So until you leave everyone until you leave one person standing, you're not done. You know, we started with one person, right? We started with the cruise boat and a dozen families and then look at how many people died from a dozen. So really the vaccine needs to be given either to everyone, but I don't think you can reach everyone because unfortunately there are people that um, have cultures beliefs that have religious beliefs that have um, you know different beliefs the what you're not going to be able to pierce that of the vaccine i I wish there was a solution like this for for everyone that everybody would believe, but we see the country is divided, and until we all come together with one solution or two solutions. You know, those who want to be vaccinated, vaccinate them. Those who want early treatment, give early treatment. Those who want prophylaxis. And then make it all available. It's not a one-pill one solution. It's multiple approaches. Some people respond to remdesivir. Great. Some people respond to the vaccine and will not catch COVID. Great. And not have any problems. Some people respond to hydroxychloroquine and don't have any problems. All of it works. Why do we limit ourselves to one method? We need to have as many approaches because, like I said, and I've said before, Rome is burning. You just pour as much water on the fire, and then you ask, which bucket did I use that worked or which hose did I use that worked? But right now, we got to turn off the fire. And the fire is a virus that is stopping people from, you know, getting together, that is stopping concerts from happening, that is stopping, you know, multiple industries, we need to stop it and we need to, to push as many things on it to stop it and to decrease it. So if all of it works, great. Let's go back to our lives. But I think, you know, I stepped into this because I want to go back to my life. And the idea of just staying in my house, quarantine, and I'm not staying in my house quarantine because obviously I'm going to work. But, you know, my parents, the idea of them staying quarantined and, and not having exposure to the sun where they need vitamin D, you know, that, that breaks my heart. You know, the elderly folks who that's the last 10 years of life and they wanted to travel and they've stopped. We've stopped everything. The kids that want to date and, and find husbands, we've stopped everything. We need to find a solution quick because this is not what life is all about. We have been afraid of living because we're fearing to die from a virus. We shouldn't fear to die. We should live. And that's the whole, that's why I stepped into this. Well, that's uh, beautifully said. And one of the things that you are doing is this Malibu conference on the microbiome coming up March 20th. And I know that 
listeners who are not physicians can sign up for the conference and can learn a lot, have a chance to ask questions. In the couple of minutes that we have left for today's show, just tell us briefly about the conference and about the website where people can go to sign up. So the conference is really to show the microbiome and the benefits of fecal transplant on certain diseases that we've seen as physicians that have done fecal transplant and to basically show the data of those doctors to, and also explain what the microbiome is all about, what fecal transplant is all about. Uh, Dr. Papuzzi, who is the scientist that wrote the paper with me on finding COVID-19 in the stools will be discussing. And so this is the opportunity for a lot of scientists and a lot of people to ask the questions of mutations and what we saw and why this is an amazing technology to look for COVID-19 because uh, he'll be speaking and discussing all that. I'm going to be uh, touching a bit on uh, the treatment of COVID and, and certainly the diseases that I've seen, um, damages of the microbiome, and, um, you know, my, my world is not just COVID. It's actually trying to find answers for autism, trying to find answers for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. So I have a lot of work to do. And, um, you know, so this is basically the, uh, a conference to bring together all these academics, doctors, and all these scientists together on one meeting that is non-biased, non-paid by pharma. It's really, um, you know, paid by the contribution of tickets, but, um, you know, essentially um, that feeds the research and, and gets us, um, you know, heard in a way and gets the attention on, on, um, on the microbiome. In fact, the head of National Institute of Standards, Scott Jackson, is going to be speaking about standardizations of tests um, and all these questions that you have on stool sequencing. And certainly there's a lot of companies out there doing. We're so. going to to wrap up today, but I really appreciate all you've shared with our listeners and the conference can be, you can register for the conference at malibumicrobiome.com, correct? No, www.malibumicrobiomeeting.com. Malibumicrobiomeeting.com, okay. Correct. And research studies, you can sign up if you're interested in those at progenabiome.com. Thanks to Dr. Hazan for having another informative session on Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm, signing off for today. Get involved, get loud. This is your life, your health, and your freedom at stake. Don't be afraid to speak out and make the world around you a better place.